Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 50, the book of Matthew, chapter 13, Conclusion. Communion with God by means of prayer through the removal of all intruding elements between man and his Maker and through the implicit acceptance of God's unity as well as an unconditional surrender of mind and heart to His holy will, which the love of God expressed in the Shema implies, this is what is understood by the receiving of the Kingdom of God. These insightful words were penned in an essay by Kent Harubi, and is recorded in the book Standing Before God. Now the final few words explain the focus of his essay. What is the Kingdom of God, the Kingdom of Heaven, and how are we to understand it? Now curiously, this is by no means a settled manner, uh, matter rather, in Christianity, and if one looks around a little bit, they'll find any number of definitions of, for the Kingdom of Heaven. Now at our congregation, congregation meeting here at the Seat of Abraham each week, prior to beginning our Bible lesson, we sing the Shema, which is something between a Jewish prayer and a declaration of allegiance to the God of Israel. Now those sitting before me, you probably know it by heart. For the others who don't attend, I want to quote it for you. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Baruch Shem Kavod Malchuto Leolam Vaed. Now translated to English it means, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is God, the Lord is one. Blessed be the name of the glory of His kingdom forever and ever. I want you to notice the important position that the Kingdom of God holds in the Shema. In the New Testament, the Kingdom of God, by the way, is also called the, the Kingdom of Heaven. Now the first part of the Shema is a quotation from Deuteronomy 6.4. The second part is the added Jewish understanding of what the Kingdom of God is and what it means in the life of a Jew. So the, the concept of the Kingdom of Heaven was hardly a new one within the Hebrew faith that began with Yeshua. However, the actualization or the arrival of the Kingdom of Heaven on earth was inaugurated with His advent. Until then, the Kingdom of Heaven existed only in Heaven. Now, interestingly, it cannot be said that we have a record of Yeshua ever truly defining the Kingdom of Heaven. Rather, He goes about telling the Jewish people what it's like. He does so using parables, because the structure of a parable in Jewish society was designed to create a simple word picture 
using everyday objects and, and people in order to make a single impactful point. Thus, we find Yeshua using a rapid-fire series of parables to help His disciples to learn about the Kingdom of Heaven because each individual parable only described one very specific element, very specific aspect of the Kingdom. Now, sometimes he would use two connecting parables that made essentially the same point, but with minor differences in nuance. For example, the twin connecting parables of the mustard seed and of the woman adding leaven to bread that we discussed last time. Now, beginning in verse 44, we get the twin connecting parables of the treasure hidden in the field and the man finding the pearl. Now, I want to say it one more time before we study these two parables. If you want to understand what the kingdom of heaven is like, you must learn Christ's parables about the kingdom because that's where this knowledge is contained. Even so, we must do it without the rather oddly confusing allegorical method of interpretation that has been championed by the church since perhaps as early as the third century. And as we study these two parables, I'm going to give you an example of what I mean by that. But first, let's read just a short section of Matthew chapter 13. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. We're just going to read verses 44 through 46. Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 46. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. A man found it. He hid it again, then in great joy went and sold everything he owned and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on the lookout for fine pearls. On finding one very valuable pearl, he went away, sold everything he owned, and he bought it. Now, although it's not universal within the church, the most predominant interpretation of the treasure that was found and the pearl that the merchant discovered is that they both represent the person of Christ. Thus, we have Yeshua telling two parables about Himself, describing Himself as a treasure and a pearl. Now, I'm going to say up front that to present it this way would be completely out of character for Him. Yeshua never glorifies Himself. He only glorifies two things, the Father and the Kingdom of Heaven. There is no better way to explain the source of this particular Christian dogma than Christ, that rather that Christ is the treasure and the pearl, than to read it to you. The early church father Origen, who wrote in the opening years of the third century, says this in his commentary on Matthew. Pay attention to this. 
And having hidden it, he goes away working and devising how he shall buy the field, or the scriptures, that he may make them his own possession, receiving from the people of God the oracles of God with which the Jews were first entrusted. And when the man taught by Christ has bought the field, the kind of God which according to another parable is a vineyard is taken from them and is given to a nation bringing forth fruits thereof. And to him who in faith has bought the field as the fruit of his his having sold all that he had, and no longer keeping him anything that was formerly his, for they were a source of evil for him. And you will give the same application. If the field containing the hidden treasure be Christ, for those who give up all things and follow him have, as it were in another way, sold their possessions in order that by having sold and surrendered them and having received in their first place from God their helper a noble resolution, they may purchase at great cost worthy of the field, the field containing the treasure hidden in itself. Now these, there's just two important takeaways from Origen's thoughts on the matter. First of all, I don't know if you heard it, but what he said is, what the Jews formerly had, the field, was taken away from them and given to the Gentiles. And second, that the hidden treasure and the field, and in a later excerpt, the pearl, all represent Christ. So Origen says that in this parable, Christ is the field and the treasure and the pearl. Christ was taken from the Jews and given to a nation, given to Gentiles. Now the first of his precepts displays this Gentiles only mindset of the institutional Christian church that began so early in Christianity and it remains embedded within it to this very day. The second of Origen's precepts, we can rather easily dismisses bogus, because the first words of the parable of the hidden treasure are, the kingdom of heaven is like, and the first words of the parable of the pearl are, again, the kingdom of heaven is like, so these parables aren't in any way drawing out who Christ is, or what He's like, but rather it is Christ expressing what the kingdom of heaven is like. Let me say it simply. Christ is not the field, the treasure, and the pearl in these two parables. Now this is a good time to remind you that to this point in Christ's ministry, the message of the good news was only and exclusively that the kingdom of heaven is near and nothing else. Nothing else. See, this is what Yeshua has been preaching and teaching about in His parables. And it's also what He sent His disciples out to preach. See, but this information sort of messes with the mind of the average Christian. Because when we think of the good news, we only think of it in terms of the message of salvation in Jesus. That too will soon become part of the good news message. But it is not yet as we study the life of Christ in Matthew's gospel account. It also means 
that in the revelation of the good news in the New Testament, salvation in Christ didn't eventually replace the message of the kingdom of heaven is near. It was not a matter of the one or the other. Therefore, it behooves me to say something else that I, I hope is not misconstrued or not taken out of context. It is that another Christian mantra, especially among evangelicals, is it's all about Jesus. End of story. No use looking any further because we just don't need to know any more than that. Now, while this statement is indeed meant in a lovely way, it also is not at all true a true reading of the New Testament. Yeshua never says it's all about Him. Nor does any writer of the New Testament documents insinuate such a thing. The good news indeed includes Yeshua as our divine Messiah. But it equally includes the arrival and central importance of the kingdom of heaven. See, this message of the kingdom, this is something that gets kind of pushed to the side rather easily in Christianity. And so when a typical believer is, is uh, asked about the kingdom of heaven, one often receives a, a, a blank stare in return. It's not that I blame them. It's because it is a subject, subject that's not, not generally investigated by ministers, nor taught to believers. <clears throat> Here in Origen's early work, which I just quoted to you, we already find this Gentile believer discarding the kingdom of heaven, replacing it with salvation in Christ. Now, I suspect that this happened because the kingdom of heaven was so central in early Hebrew thought. That's why I showed you about the Shema. And early Gentile Christians wanted to separate themselves from this Jewish world and the Jewish religion. Christians wanted to separate themselves. So it's easier to make this sophomore Say, saying that can fit on a bumper sticker and never deviate from it. It's all about Jesus. Rather, the reality is that Jesus Himself constantly tells us it's all about His Father. And it's all about the Kingdom of Heaven. Now let those with ears hear. Now for the parable of the hidden treasure. First, I want to quickly do away with Origen's contention that this parable speaks of the Jewish people having been disinherited. Yeshua, of course, never meant such a thing as he, a Jew, talked to his fellow Jewish people and his Jewish disciples about their membership in the Kingdom of Heaven and the importance of its presence to them. Let us begin by remembering the paramount rule for deciphering a parable. Don't get distracted by the details. What kind of a field or the size of it, it just doesn't matter. Exactly what the treasure box looked like, doesn't matter. Who this man was, why he would have been digging in somebody else's field, 
just doesn't matter. All we need to do is take this short story at the face value any common Jewish person would have in the first century. It was this. Should one have the good fortune to be digging around in a random field and stumble across an immensely valuable treasure in it, what would most anyone do next? Well, the answer begins with a given. Since the man did not own the field he found the treasure in, then he would rebury it, go find the owner, do whatever is necessary to buy that field from him. But here's another detail that doesn't matter the reburying of the treasure. Doesn't matter. It has no bearing on the meaning of this parable. However, is there any significance to not just secretly taking that treasure rather than going and paying the owner for the field? Yes, but only because it would have gone against all Jewish cultural norms to find something valuable in your neighbor's field and just take it from them. In other words, it would have been a dishonest act. It would have been theft. The significance of the story is that the treasure the man found was so valuable that it was worth the man taking immediate action by sinking every last shekel he had into obtaining that field. That's so the treasure would become his. He was willing to trade away everything he held dear in order to own that treasure. Well, let's move on now to the parable of the merchant who finds a valuable pearl. This is the companion, this is the twin parable of the previous one. The difference between the first parable and the second is that in the first, Finding the treasure was just a pure act of serendipity. But in the second parable, the merchant was on the hunt for pearls. He finds an exceptional one and, like the first man, let go of everything he owned in order to acquire this pearl of great value. Now, there really are no details to deal with in this parable. The issue of the very valuable thing being a pearl has to be understood again from a first century Jewish standpoint. Pearls were among the most valuable things a person could own. It, pearls were more valuable than gold or silver in those days. So any pearl was highly valued, but an especially good pearl was massively expensive. The point or aim of both of these stories is the same. The kingdom of heaven is the most valuable thing a person could possess. The kingdom of heaven is worth every material thing a person owned or could acquire. That's the message. So in the parables of Jesus in Matthew 13, we have learned four things about what the kingdom of heaven is like. First, there are several types of hearers, several types of people that are going to hear about the arrival of the kingdom of heaven. Each will respond differently to the message depending on the type of mind 
and the openness of spirit that they have. Now, some are going to hear the message and give it no heed. Others are going to apprehend the greatness of it and embrace it with joy and never let it go. And there are other responses in between those two extremes. But the point is that the entrance into the kingdom depends solely on the response of the hearer of the message, because it's free and it's available to all the same. The second thing we've learned is that the kingdom began concealed. It was very small, largely invisible. However, even though the arrival of the kingdom is small, it's hard to see, just like that tiny seed of a mustard plant thrown into a field, or like a, a, a pinch of leaven thrown into a large batch of bread dough, the kingdom of heaven will expand. It will grow very large as an unstoppable process. And this is so even though the kingdom of heaven has been planted, and this is important, the kingdom of heaven has been planted within an evil kingdom, planet Earth, that is currently ruled over by Satan. So a heavenly invasion is taking place right under Satan's nose. It began early in the first century. Satan cannot stop it. Now the third thing is that just like with any field in its crop, it doesn't matter how good the seed is, that is how good and perfect the kingdom of heaven is, there's going to be weeds. There's going to be opponents that grow up with it. The question is that since tares, weeds, look so similar to wheat or barley to the untrained eye, should the bearers of the good seed, the messengers of the kingdom, go out, try to identify these opponents among the good and true believers and uproot them? The answer is a general no. Rather, pulling up a weed, an opponent, could accidentally also harm that good plant. So it's better to wait until the harvest, which takes place on Judgment Day, than let God do the separation. Therefore, assemblies of God worshipers shouldn't be too impulsive in our judgment or uh, on these troublemakers or problem children in our midst. We shouldn't act too quickly to weed them out, because harm to the good people could potentially happen as collateral damage. And finally, as with the treasure and the pearl, Christ teaches us that the value of the kingdom of heaven is so immense that people should do anything, give up everything to be part of it. There is nothing on earth that can compare in worth to the kingdom. So there's no price too high to pay to become a member. That's what we've learned so far through his parables. So let's move on to the next parable 
in Matthew 13. Open your Bibles back up to Matthew 13. We're going to look at verses 47 through 50. Matthew 13, 47 through 50. Once more, the kingdom of heaven is like a net thrown into the lake that caught all kinds of fish. And when it was full, the fishermen brought the net up onto the shore, sat down, and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad fish away. So it will be this way at the close of the age. The angels will go forth, separate the evil people from among the righteous, throw them into the fiery furnace where they will wail and grind their teeth. Now this parable for me is the most challenging one so far. See, it's in many ways similar to the parable of the tares that has to do with separating the good plants from the weeds. And yet there may be something inherently different. In the short story of the tares, clearly it is that although the good seed is just randomly sown into the fields and some weeds voluntarily sprout up along with them, this natural thing that happens in every field, comparing the kingdom of heaven to a fishing net that's thrown in the water is just a little different. Okay. The net captures both good fish and bad fish essentially against their will. Therefore, I, I'm not entirely sure as to whether to use the use of a fishing net is an unimportant detail or it has a lot to do with the point of the story. That is, the good and the bad fish are, in a sense, involuntarily caught up in the same net. What's oh, a bad fish? For a Jew, a bad fish is something that's not kosher. It can't be eaten. It's unclean. And let me tell you, the Sea of Galilee has always had a pretty good amount of catfish in it. And those are not permissible to eat. So the net pulls up the clean and the unclean fish together. But it does it rather indiscriminately in just one big catch. And then later, the fisherman sorts through them and throws away the bad fish, the non-kosher fish. Now even so, I am inclined to not pay too much attention to exactly how a fishing net works, to capture fish any more than to the details of how exactly a so-or-so seed. That is, it's not really the net that's the point of the story any more than the sower was the point of the early parable. It's only that now we have an agricultural parable to go along with a fishing parable, using scenarios of the two most dominant industries in the Galilee to help demonstrate to the common people the same important point. And the point is that it is only at the end of history that a separation of people into clean and unclean, good and bad, will finally occur. That's when it's to happen. The separation happens 
only at the end of a centuries-long process. And as with the tares, what is caught in the net that's bad will be destroyed. Nothing is said about what happens to the good, the righteous, other than they're just gathered and set aside. Now perhaps in this parable Jesus is directing His listeners' attention to the basic matter of when. When the separation of good and evil occurs. Now this was an expected separation that was already understood by the Jews as a foretold thing. He explains that the separation of the good from the evil is not going to be immediate, but rather it's only going to occur at the end times day of judgment when the kingdom of heaven has finally reached its maturity. Thus, one thing we can take from all that Christ has said so far is that even though we can know the process of redemption, the definitions of what's good, what's evil, in God's eyes, and even the final outcome of it all for humanity, we as His followers need to remain patient. We are not tasked as the ones to take the matter of the final separation into our hands. So we should be careful not to prejudge or assume or to act in haste. This certainly does not mean that we aren't to be observant and aware and make choices because we've already been taught by Yeshua to look for certain things during our earthly lives to kind of help us along the way, to protect us. Things like not ever expecting a bad fruit tree to put out good fruit. Yeshua says that's impossible. The issue for us then is not as much as the identification of what's bad, but rather what do we do about it? I want to make an application as far as followers of Christ are concerned. Believers don't have to look very far to find some popular TV religious personalities or pastors of very large and prominent churches who have been exposed as dishonest or have committed blatant immoral actions and yet with the proper outward show of contrition and at the demand of their followers, they're right back in the pulpit or right back on TV again. Now while as believers we're not in God's position of judging their eternal fate, at the same time Yeshua tells us that we can determine a good tree from a bad tree by means of the fruit it bears. Dishonest fruit, immoral fruit, What does that say? This is a bad fruit tree. Why does Jesus think we need to know how to tell a good tree from a bad one if we're only meant to look the other way or to do nothing about it? We can and we should identify, we should stay far away from the influence of dishonest or immoral persons of every walk every occupation, but especially from those that want to teach us on spiritual matters 
that may have eternal consequences. Even though that permanent separation of people into the good and the bad is an eternal matter, well, that's reserved for God Himself at the final judgment. Verse 49 reinforces it's going to be heaven's angels that will go out and do the actual separating of the evil from the righteous. That is, God will authorize His heavenly army as the ones who do the separating. Now, exactly how all that's going to occur, what it's going to look like, we don't really know. But that it's going to happen, that's a hundred percent. That's a certainty. Let's read some more of Matthew chapter 13. Let's move on to verse 51. Chapter 13, verse 51, we'll go on to the end. Have you understood all these things? Yes, they answered. And he said to them, So then, every Torah teacher who has been made into a Talmud, all right, a disciple for the kingdom of heaven, is like the owner of a home who brings out of his storage room both new things and old. And when Yeshua had finished these parables, he left and he went to his hometown. There he taught them in their synagogue in a way that astounded them, so that they asked, where do this man's wisdom and miracles come from? Isn't he the carpenter's son? Isn't he, isn't his mother called Miriam and his brothers Yaakov, Yosef, Shimon, and Judah? And his sisters, aren't they all with us? So where does he get all of this? And they took offense at him. But Yeshua said to them, you know, the only place people don't respect a prophet is in his hometown and in his own house. And he did few miracles there because of their lack of trust. Yeshua asks his disciples if they have understood what he's telling them about the kingdom of heaven. They respond that they do. So then he goes on to tell them another parable. Now the form of this parable is a little bit different from the earlier ones in that while the setting is the kingdom of heaven, the comparison being made is not between the kingdom of heaven and something else, but rather between the person who teaches the scriptures and something else. Now although the subject of the parable is called a Torah teacher in the complete Jewish Bible, in nearly all other English translations, the word is scribe. I have no quarrel with either. However, in the first century Jewish context, Torah teacher, that is probably the better choice for us to, to, to understand it. So, taken literally, this parable focuses on the official chief teachers within the synagogue system, but only those who have also been made into disciples for the kingdom of heaven. In other words, this may imply that there were indeed chief teachers, scribes, in the synagogue system that have already accepted Christ's message of good news that the kingdom of heaven has arrived. Therefore, those that accept this message are called disciples. Yet there's another possibility that has to be considered. 
Some Bible scholars claim that Yeshua is calling His disciples scribes. Davies and Allison, in their commentary on this matter, put it this way, The major point is that the disciples have indeed understood Jesus' discourse and therefore are qualified as skilled scribes. That is, Yeshua is using the term scribes, or Torah teachers, metaphorically, and it's not speaking of them in any official synagogue capacity. It's not unlike Peter, who in 1 Peter 2.9 says that believers form a royal priesthood. That is, the terms priest and priesthood as applied to believers are not meant that we become physical replacements for the official God-ordained priests and priesthoods, uh, uh, priesthood of Levites. Rather, Peter used the term priest metaphorically saying that believers are a group of individuals who have dedicated themselves to the Lord. And in that sense, they, we, are priests. The problem I have with this interpretation is that therefore all who accept Christ and understand His parables become scribes for the kingdom. Even more, the wording of the parable, and catch this, the wording of this parable is not that a disciple is made into a scribe, it is that a scribe is made into a disciple. It's a big difference. So I strongly favor this statement as referring to the likely handful of synagogue scribes who have accepted the good news of the Kingdom of Heaven. And so they become disciples in that sense. Now as we continue with the parable, Yeshua says that these scribes have become disciples for the Kingdom of Heaven and they can be compared to, here we go with another one, they can be compared to, they are like, the owner of a home who brings out of his storage room both new things and old. And as one can imagine, especially due to the rampant use of allegory to decipher his parables, there are a number of interpretations regarding what is meant by the old and what is meant by the new that comes out of a homeowner's storehouse. The list's too long to go through, but generally speaking, the Christian concept is that the old is the revelation of the Torah, the new is the revelation of Jesus. Now, remembering that there's only one point, only one aim of any parable, and that the characters in a parable are nearly universally fictional, then putting on our first century Jewish minds, the storehouse can only be representative of the sum total knowledge of God that has thus far been revealed to humans. In the context of the times, Jewish humans. Therefore, within that storehouse of knowledge, there are new things and there are old things. Things that are being revealed by Yeshua, things that have already been revealed in times past in the Torah and the Tanakh. Thus, the Torah teachers, the scribes, that have heard, accepted, understood the message of 
that Christ brings about the earthly presence of the kingdom of heaven, they now have new things, new revelations to add to their storehouse of previously revealed knowledge of God. Please note that unlike the implication within Christianity, it's kind of a rule that the new replaces the old, just as with the parable of the new and the old wineskins, there is no implication that the homeowner of this current parable is disposing of the old, replacing it with the new. Rather, both the old and the new reside together as fully compatible, each having a continuing purpose. So the one point of this parable is this. Torah teachers who accept Yeshua's revelation about the arrival of the Kingdom of Heaven and all of its implications, they have something new to add to what they've been teaching. But the reverse is also true. Those scribes who do not accept the revelation of the Kingdom of Heaven have only the old things to teach. Thus what they teach is not necessarily obsolete or wrong. It's just incomplete. And what they are missing in their personal storehouses of knowledge is of the greatest importance and value. Now verse 53 says that when he finished his teaching his disciples and probably others, he left for his hometown. Now since Yeshua was currently in Capernaum, this can only mean that he left for Nazareth, which is only about a 20-mile journey southwest. If he went without stopping, he would have gotten there in one, maybe two days at the most. We're told that there, in Nazareth, he taught in the local synagogue. Now notice how even the modest-sized town of Nazareth had a synagogue. However, don't picture some nicely built and dedicated building. We need to understand the term more in the sense of an assembly, a congregation of God-worshippers. No synagogue building has ever been unearthed in Nazareth. Nonetheless, the point is that in Nazareth, where his family lived, where he grew up as a child, he was given the opportunity to speak, which he did. And the people of the congregation in Nazareth were dumbfounded, dumbfounded at the authority and the truth and the wisdom which he taught them. They knew him and they knew his family very well. So much so that they even asked rhetorically, well, isn't his mother Miriam and his brothers Yaakov, Yosef, Shimon, and Judah? They also said they know his sisters. They don't name any. My point is, Yeshua had several biological brothers and sisters, all from the womb of his mother Mary. And since there's no mention of his father Joseph, we could probably reasonably assume that by now he was deceased. Well, setting aside the astounding teaching Yeshua gave to them, the people were actually, can you get this? offended. They were offended by Him. See, the Gospel of Mark 
records the same event in nearly identical words to begin his chapter 6. Now we should not imagine that Yeshua's topic deviated from the kingdom of heaven. But I think what we must consider is the reaction of the people. It is more than just rejection. It's open hostility. Clearly these folks didn't understand what Christ was teaching them, which in turn teaches us something. Those who are indifferent to the message of the Kingdom of Heaven automatically find Christ as an irritation to them. See, part of what seems to bother the townsfolk of Nazareth so much is that Jesus is merely the son of a carpenter. Or in Mark's Gospel, He was a carpenter. Yet they don't seem to question His wisdom or the miracles He's known for. That is, He's already well known as a miracle-working holy man. Yet they also know full well that He has had no formal religious education or some kind of recognition or some kind of ordination from the synagogue system authorities that would validate Him as an official teacher. Thus the content and the truth of His message are dismissed because He doesn't have the proper credentials. And like the Pharisees who confronted Him from time to time, the synagogue members of Nazareth Nazareth, question just where He attained His wisdom and the ability to do miracles, implying they sure don't believe it was from God. Now this scenario is a uh, microcosm of the kind of rejection from His own people that, that Yeshua constantly faced in His ministry. He responds to the congregation with the Jewish proverb. The only place people don't respect the prophets in his hometown and even in his own house. Well, this implies that Yeshua's brothers and sisters were skeptical of him as well. We must understand in his day, in his culture, what a person was born as, where they came from, determined who that person was, and what their destiny would be. Jesus was, to the members of His hometown, to His own family, a lowly blue-collar craftsman and little else. He was reaching far beyond the accepted boundaries of His social status. and This was pretty troubling to those who knew Him best. So when He tried to teach His hometown people something new, the arrival of God's kingdom on earth. They took a deep religious offense because they felt Yeshua had no grounds, no status upon which to make those pronouncements. They simply couldn't square His known humble beginnings with that man that stood before them that day, so they rejected Him and they rejected His message. The final words of chapter 13 are that Christ did only a few miracles in Nazareth 
because of their lack of trust. Now we can take this as meaning one of two things. Either Yeshua's ability to do miracles was dependent upon the faith of the people He was dealing with, or He determined to only do miracles for people who displayed a sufficient level of trust in Him. Now, no doubt we find in these words a connection between faith and healing. But faith in what? Trusting Jesus for what? See, it was certainly not that He was divine Messiah. Rather, it was that Yeshua was God-sent, God-empowered, to speak as He spoke, teach as He taught, heal as He healed. Few in Nazareth, including among His own family, trusted that connection between God and Yeshua. But for those few in Nazareth who did trust, Yeshua healed them. See, this had actually been His method of operating for some time. The myriads of people He had healed up to now, they had not seen Him as their Messiah, but rather as a God-sent Sadek, a Jewish holy man. That's what they trusted in. And for now, for now, that was sufficient. Because that was as far as the divine revelation given to them could take them. We'll begin with Matthew chapter 14 next time.